here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller. We are broadcasting live online and on the radio from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio Studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today, up with the Teamsters, up with Unite Here. David Griscom from Left Reckoning joins to talk about Texas and folks, quote, voting against their own interests. We're going to dive deep into that. Adam is going to talk about schools, all that and more on today's Valley Labor Report. If you want to be part of the program today, we've got a phone number and the line is open. You can call or text 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can also leave a voicemail throughout the week and we might get, uh, we might answer your call on the radio. So definitely call in if you want to be part of the show. Leave us a voicemail if you have some thoughts throughout the week. Uh, If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap up here on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online, in particular on our website, tvlr.fm, where we are coming out with new content every day. So you're going to want to bookmark our website. You're going to want to sign up for our newsletter as well. We have a weekly update that comes out once a week on Thursdays to give you the recap and some uh, some information about what's going to be coming on the uh, following Saturday's show, as well as we have a daily newsletter as well that gives you uh, Monday through Thursday, gives you everything that we have put out that day, uh, comes in your inbox at the end of the day, so you can check it out as you are leaving the office or you're coming in the next day. So definitely uh, go to tvlr.fm slash contact and let us know if you want to be on the daily or the weekly newsletter list. Just a reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to support the program, you can go to tvlr.fm slash donate, and you can make a one-time donation sort of as a tip, or you can become a sustaining member and sign up for one of our dues tiers or um, create a custom one. You can donate as little as a dollar a month and also as much a month as you would like. (laughs) Um, We are having a fundraiser tomorrow uh, that you can come to in person in Birmingham at the CWA Union Hall. 
the CWA Union Hall from 1 to 4 p.m. We're going to have a uh, small live show. We're going to have some food. Uh, the Youth Caucus of the State Democratic Executive Committee here in Alabama is putting it on for us. We're really appreciative of them and uh, appreciative of their support. So if you are in or around the Birmingham area, and you want to spend some time with us tomorrow, maybe after you get out of church, then uh, you can buy a ticket at tvlr.fm slash fundraiser. 100% of the funds are going to go straight into uh, funding uh, the Valley Labor Report. The Youth Caucus is covering the cost of food and uh, renting a hall if the C- if CWA is charging them. Um, so 100% is going to go into the operations budget of the show. Uh, so if you appreciate what we're doing and you're around Birmingham, then maybe uh, swing by. You can also purchase a ticket at the door or you can go ahead and buy it. So uh, that way you've got it at tvlr.fm slash fundraiser. Yeah, really hope folks show up. Love to see some folks in person and chat and, you know, you're welcome to participate. So if you're in the Birmingham area, come pay us a visit. Absolutely. Um, the, Sorry uh, about that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, we also have some merch. Like I said uh, a while ago, we ordered about 20 extra of the Good Things State t-shirts. Uh, they, those should be finished. Uh, the production should be finished on those late this month. So they'll be coming out to you in May. And uh, if you didn't get one, we have 20 extra. So make sure that you get one of those at tvlr.fm slash store. And if you're a member of a union, then think about getting your local to sponsor the show. We could not do the program without our local sponsors. Um, And so you can reach out to me for more details on that. If your membership has any questions, we are happy to... Uh, happy to come to a meeting uh, in person if it's in the area or via Zoom, or I can just call in and you can put me on speakerphone to answer any questions. Absolutely. And we've done that before. We've, we've spoken at union meetings. And in fact, if you have any organization that might be remotely interested, if you think there's an organization that you belong to that is interested in labor and supporting labor and supporting independent media in Alabama and the South, then Uh, you know, let's get that conversation started. We're happy to do that and happy to partner with you. I do want to add a disclaimer that any viewpoints or opinions expressed in this program belong solely to their author and do not necessarily represent any organization or sponsor. We welcome all of our listeners, whether you are on YouTube, Facebook, WVNN, WZZA, WHIV, or through your favorite podcast app. We are proud to be part of the Labor Radio Podcast Network and encourage our listeners to check it out. We're hoping that this project can make a difference, that we can provide a bigger platform for working class people in Alabama and across the South. We can't do this without you, and we want to thank everyone for tuning in. Whether you're a loyal fan or a first-time listener, we appreciate you spending some time with us this morning. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's go ahead and jump into this. We've got some good news uh, to start off with. Um, That is uh, Teamsters and Unite here have posted some big numbers on the board. Ian Colgren at Bloomberg took a look at Department of Labor filings for Bloomberg. And while, of course, the overall picture wasn't so great, we talked to y'all about it when the 
Bureau of Labor Statistics um, stats on union membership came out. Union membership actually fell uh, again last year from 10.3% to 10.1%, the lowest union density rate since we began taking measurements. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of different feelings in the air about unions, but unfortunately it hasn't materialized as much as we would hope. But there are some bright spots in the picture, in particular the International Brotherhood of Teamsters reported gaining 200 106,000 members just last year. Wow. An increase of 20% from the previous year. That's amazing. That is huge. Uh, this is going to be a big help as they go into contract negotiations with UPS later this year. More on that later. But they weren't the only ones with good news. Unite Here also added nearly 40,000 hospitality workers, a gain of more than 18%. They had the second largest gain uh, by percentage right after the Teamsters. And that's after they lost nearly all of their members at the height of the at the height of the pandemic. If you'll recall, uh, they lost, I believe it was ninety eight percent of their membership during the pandemic. Uh, and, and so for them to come back as strong as I think they have now more members than they did before the pandemic started. So they are uh, really, really, uh, you know. I mean, just on a roll. We talked to Unite Here President, International President Dan Taylor last year on the show about their comeback from the pandemic and their special emphasis on the South as well. I think that he mentioned that over his tenure as president, they've organized some something like 20,000 workers in the Southeast, uh, and it looks like they haven't let up. So uh, really, really exciting to see that news. Hell yeah. Love to see that. And uh, like I said, we're going to uh, do a little bit of an update about the UPS negotiations. Their contract with UPS, the largest private sector contract in the country, I think it's the large. It is the largest contract cover uh, uh, with a single employer in the entire country, covering some three hundred and fifty thousand UPS workers. Uh, they are the the contract expires on the thirty first of July this year. And uh, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters last week called on the United Parcel Service to stop stalling and begin negotiating in good faith. Uh, they contend that UPS is not seriously negotiating and uh, not seriously committed to finalizing supplemental contract negotiations as soon as possible, saying that the company uh, needs to... Uh, telling the company that bargaining for a new national agreement is not going to begin until all of the supplemental agreements are ratified. And so, you know, that is a stance. And it's not like they're just coming out with this um, with this stance now. That has been something that the International Brotherhood of Teamsters has told UPS from the beginning. They right. said from the beginning, this is the order that the contracts need to be negotiated in. We need to get ironed out all of the supplemental regional agreements, you know, between the locals and UPS before we begin uh, bargaining on the national agreement. And that's been their position the whole time. And, uh, and, and the Teamsters are saying that UPS is just not moving quickly enough 
to hammer out the final details on some of these supplemental con uh, supplemental contracts. And so they say that they began supplemental co uh, contract negotiations with UPS in January. And out of 40 supplements to the national contract nationwide, 30 remain unresolved after repeated delays by UPS. 75% of the supplemental contracts remain unresolved after four months of bargaining. Wow. Well, that speaks for itself. Yeah. Teamsters General President Sean O'Brien said, quote, We have clearly stated our intentions to UPS from the beginning that there would be no national negotiations until these regional contracts are completed. This is not a game, but you wouldn't know that based on UPS's behavior. The livelihoods of our members are at stake. UPS delays, disappears, drags its feet, and refuses to talk about the real issues that workers need addressed, and the Teamsters aren't going to stand for it. Uh, like I said, more than 340,000 Teamsters work at UPS, protected by the largest private sector collective bargaining agreement in North America, and the current five-year agreement expires on July 31st, 2023. And uh, UPS Teamsters are also covered under supplemental agreements. And so here in their press release, they describe kind of what these supplemental uh, agreements are. They're riders or addendums specific to the regions in which these UPSers work. These contracts define, provi uh, define provisions not covered under the national agreement like paid time off, discipline language, seniority, overtime, and work hours. Uh, from the Teamsters General Secretary Fred Zuckerman, the Teamsters and UPS have 12 weeks 12 weeks to come to terms before our contract expires, and UPS is not taking this seriously. UPS has had four months to bargain in good faith and reach agreement on supplemental issues. They haven't. They don't get to drag out this process. We will be in Washington ready to reach agreement on all outstanding issues in our supplemental contracts. It's up to UPS to get its act together, show up, and do right by its workforce. Until then, there will be no negotiations on a national contract. Going back to O'Brien, he says, after pulling in record-breaking revenue of more than $100 billion last year, UPS is delusional to think that they can just ignore the workers who make them successful. UPS is making a joke of supplemental negotiations. When they finally decide to bargain in a professional and serious manner, the Teamsters will be here, ready to go. So we look forward to seeing more updates from them as, con uh, as negotiations on the supplemental contracts continue and the national con uh, contract negotiations begin. And uh, hopefully we'll be getting some of these Teamsters on uh, the show sometime to talk about it. Yeah, and I think it's important, the statement that, that they put out, I think it was important to lay it out there for the public that you know this is what has been going on all this time. Mm -hmm. uh, this is what we've been clear about, and it's UPS who's delaying things. I think that's important because, you know, we know where this could head right. later this summer. Uh, so and UPS is going to try to say, UPS is going to try to blame it on the union. UPS absolutely. is going to try to say that, oh, these workers have too much money. The multi-millionaire CEO is going to try to say that the workers are greedy and the workers aren't bargaining in good faith. And so it's important for folks to understand early on that those arguments are going to be BS. Right. And, you know, they say all that while they won't even put air conditioners in the trucks. Right. Or fans. Uh, right, right. And while yeah. they have a two-tier system. Yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of progress that needs to be made, and I commend the Teamsters for this strong statement and, you know, uh, wishing them all the best in these negotiations. Yep.
We're going to go ahead and head to a break. On, a, on the other side, we're going to be talking to David Griscom. He is one of the hosts of Left Reckoning, a popular YouTube program about uh, uh, left politics with a, uh, I think, with, with a particular focus on, on you know, real issues affecting working folks. I really enjoy uh, their content. So yeah, we're going to be talking to this. Yeah, we're going to be talking to him about Texas and about uh, ideology and the working class. It's going to be good. So. So make sure you stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. I'm all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Labor creates all wealth. All wealth should go to labor. And you are listening to the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison. My co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to call, now the lines are open. 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We had forgotten to turn the lines on earlier. Whoops. Whoopsie daisy. But now they're on. Now they're on, folks. So send us a text message. Give us a call and we will get you on the air. Our guest today is David Griscom, resident of Texas and co-host of Left Reckoning, a popular uh, online uh, left-wing political talk show. Uh, David, welcome back to the Valley Labor Report. Dude, always happy to be here, brother. Thank you for having me. Glad to have you on and uh, really excited to talk to you today. You did a, um, and, and we're going to talk some about, about Texas and, and, and Huntsville. Um, so we'll, let's just go into that and then we'll talk about the, the big reason why I wanted to bring you on. But first, I wanted to talk to you about this this stuff that, that Governor Abbott is doing with mm-hmm. the, uh, uh, with his, his stated uh, intent to, uh, uh, to, oh shoot, I forgot the word. What is it? Pardon, pardon a convicted <laughs> murderer. The the governor of Texas, supposedly tough on crime, is intending on pardoning a convicted murderer. What is going on over there? I mean, it's it's truly a, a very clear miscarriage of justice. I mean, you know. J- don't really even have to spend much time on explaining this case because it's just that egregious and uh you know a jury um decided that as well um back during the black lives matter protests um a protester was shot and killed uh by somebody who drove their vehicle into the protesters um the black lives matter protesters and then discharged Mm. his firearm um into garrett foster um killing him um, it was wow. and it, it was something that is very clearly there was intent um, when you're sort of going into uh, driving into protesters like that. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the jury uh, certainly agreed. And what's so, um, you know, frightening and upsetting about what Greg Abbott is doing is one Abbott's never been somebody who's been particularly interested um, in uh, pardoning people in the state of Texas, right. despite many cases that have come to his desk being quite extreme. Um, this is a very clear you know, political move here. I mean, Greg Abbott, uh, now it seems like Ron DeSantis probably is the, the one who might be challenging Trump, but you know, Greg Abbott is sort of flirting with the presidential run. Uh, this is certainly an attempt, I think, uh, for him to sort of shore up some uh, support um, with some members of the uh, far right in this country. 
Um, and, you know, on top of like, I think the miscarriage of justice, because this is really just such a clear cut case, in my opinion, um, and the, the, the jury's opinion as well. Um, what's really amazing about this, and I've been writing about this for Jacobin and other uh, publications for a while, is it's another example about how Abbott is running the state. Um, he has really concentrated tremendous power in the governor's office in ways that um, are that violate the Texas Constitution, at least in the spirit of it, of having a weak governor system where more of the power is supposed to reside in the legislature. Um, he's what, what he's doing here is he is not just saying like, oh, if this comes to my desk, right, if a parole board um, sends this to my desk, I will pardon this person, right? He's telling the board that I want you to send this case to my desk, basically, right. you know, another assault on these, you know, supposed to be more independent bodies of Texas government. And he's been doing that across the board, across a lot of issues um, and, and and other kind of topics. But I mean, this is this is extremely egregious. And again, like this case is so clear cut. Somebody came in there, drove a vehicle into protesters and then shot one of them. Right. And not not only that, but there was intent before that that has come out now and and i was kind of wondering if abbott might backstep after these text messages were revealed but um it, it doesn't seem like there there's been any uh uh any indication that he will be doing that but there are text messages of the uh of this guy before he goes to this protest saying i might go to dallas to shoot some looters um i you know just really fantasizing about killing somebody that he mm. has political disagreements with no i mean that's the like that's the point about the intent and like i don't think that um you know these kind of things will dissuade abbott you know in the way that he's talking about him you know um about perry you know he's using his military title and things like that you know trying to bestow like a bit of like honor uh to this again convicted murderer and you know like at a certain point you can point out hypocrisy only so much when it comes to texas republicans um, but for somebody who's always complaining about law and order in the state and how, you know, certain kind of policies have led Texas into a, you know, a dangerous precipice of violence um, to sit here and say, like, well, for some folks, if I might sort of agree with their politics or I don't find their politics to be a threat, you know, we're not going to do law and order for those folks. Um, it's 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 an extremely worrying um, example of, the, again, like the overreach that we've seen from the Abbott administration since he's been in office. Right. And we're seeing a similar situation here in Huntsville. Uh, it was with a cop, not a, you know, so this this fellow uh, over in Texas wasn't a cop. He was like an army sergeant, and he was off duty when this happened. But mm -hmm. uh, but here in Huntsville, we had a, a, a cop convicted of murder uh, back in 2021. Uh, he uh, blasted this suicidal man's face with a shotgun. Um, oh, seconds. After arriving on the scene, uh, where already on the scene were two other officers who were talking to this suicidal person, trying to get him to put down, it was a flare gun that he had pointed to his own head. He showed no signs of aggression at any time, but this fellow barked orders at him, and he didn't play Simon Says fast enough, and he blew his head off. And he was convicted of murder by a jury of his peers. And then immediately, and all through the trial, Huntsville's mayor, the uh, you know the the quote unquote union for the cops, uh, both locally and nationally. I'm talking about the national 
Fraternal Order Police President. He called into local radio defending this convicted murderer. The mayor defending a convicted murderer. Police chief defending the convicted murderer. And now he's had his conviction overturned by a court of appeals uh, on some, you know, whatever that, that uh, you know, basically the argument is that, that cops should have a lower standard for murder. Uh, that, that they have more leeway in murdering citizens than the rest of us do. And, uh, I mean, it's just really, really disgusting. And now he's, he's out free. He's, he's walking around while they wait for the trial to, trial to be reheld. Um, and, and, I mean, this is so egregious, at, uh, uh, David, that I want you to understand. He was prosecuted by the DA's office of a right-wing Republican DA by an attorney in the DA's office who was a former Huntsville police officer. Like, that's how egregious this was. And they're going around trying to make this out like, oh, you know, the DA doesn't support police. The DA doesn't support police. And it's just silly. Mm-hmm. It's, I mean, yeah, really disgusting. Yeah, no, I mean, like... But if you're you a know, cop or a right-winger, you can just go around murdering people, and it's fine. Yeah, and, and like, the message it sends to certain people, particularly in, in a period of time where we are seeing more and more violence in this country, um, you know, it, it is something not to, you know, scare folks too much, you know, but, like, it is something to be, you know, very worried about. Um, and particularly, you know, in some of these cases where you're seeing, like, political careers being attached um, to some of these decisions, you know, it's also very clear that for for a certain segment of the population, for a certain segment of the political class, like, it's like, all right, let's bend the law and protect murderers and, and criminals um, from from uh, from punishment for their crimes. Right. And again, it's ironic and it's hypocritical that it's coming from a party, um, you know, here that is, you know, on this crusade that the land's becoming lawless and we need law and order, um, you know, again, unless it's people who we generally support or think aren't that dangerous or bad right law and order for thee but not for me and Mm -hmm. uh, you know the thing about the Huntsville case is that of course the taxpayers had to pay for the defense of this killer cop the entire time we're still paying for it Uh, and and, you know just like the case in Texas you're you're seeing a really disturbing use of state power you know that's that's a disturbing use of state power to intervene on the side of violence against citizens it's just no, and know. like when it comes to the police, you know, um, not to be star out about it, but like, you know, this is supposed to be a public service, right? This is supposed to be, you know, something that's protecting the citizens. And it's very clear that like a lot of police departments don't think of themselves as that. Um, they they think of themselves as sort of like a unique and independent body. I mean, it's a whole other conversation, but we're having a lot of questions about police oversight in the city of Austin. Um, and one thing that's been really shocking during this fight, um, uh, with you know the the police organizations and you know people who are uh, you know pushing for less regulations and less oversight of the cops is that they're actually willing um, to take pay cuts if that means that they'll have less oversight. Um, wow. you know, which is just a wild thing when you know very revealing about defunding or how much we're funding the police departments. Um, when you're right. seeing cops basically saying like, "Hey, I'll take a pay cut if that means like I'm not going to have an independent board overseeing our actions." Um, that should worry you as a citizen yeah. of, of, of of that that locality. Yeah, a- absolutely. And and I mean, this is what you know, like 
people will, you know, I, uh, you know, it's obvious that I have a very pessimistic view of police in this country, and and people will will talk to me and they'll say, oh, you know, don't you think it's just one or two or bad uh, bad apples or whatever? And it and it's like, no, these are their organizations. You know, I told you the the president of the co- cop quote unquote union calling into mm-hmm. local radio defending a convicted murderer. If if my union president did that, I would have a problem. Right. That would be an issue for me. That would be a huge issue for me if my national president is going around local radio defending convicted murderers. And these mm-hmm. are the people and, and the police chief, the, the mayor. These are the people that they want representing them. And so I'm allowing their representatives to represent them. And, and then it's not good. It's not good. Uh, and, you know, and if they want to, uh, you know, if if. Uh, cops in in Huntsville are, are listening to this on the radio, and you know you want to you you know you want to oust your you know quote unquote union leadership to have somebody who thinks that you know killer cops ought to be held accountable. Then you know that that would go you know that would go a long way, I think, in increasing public trust. But, right. Hopefully, we can agree that murder is bad. Yeah. <laughs> that was. I don't know. Seems like that would be a pretty good starting point. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, you know, so, David, let's talk about this other there, – there's some more stuff going on in Texas, and, yeah. um, and and there's another connection to Alabama here, and that's with this uh, push for school privatization. Um, mm-hmm. Alabama just introduced in the uh, House of Representatives a uh, quote-unquote school choice bill. It's just meant to, you know, suck uh, public funds from uh, – from public schools and funnel it into the pockets of, you know, wealthy individuals and CEOs of private schools. Uh, but it's it's a pretty expansive bill, and uh, there was something similar introduced in Texas that I saw was voted down in the Texas State House. But you said that it might not be quite as cut and dry. As, as maybe mm-hmm. I had thought. So can you explain what's going on with, with Texas and, and vouchers and privatization and, and where that's at over there? Yeah, again, um, so basically um, a lot of this, I mean, one, this is something that the Republicans in, in Texas have wanted to do for a while. And it's actually, it's one of those things that national Republicans or people within the Republican Party, you know, sort of ask themselves like, why is Texas sort of behind um, other Republican-run states on school privatization? Um, right. Texas has had majorities of Republicans for my entire life, pretty much. Um, and uh, this is a very clear attempt, I find, from Abbott to try to shore up, again, a, a presidential run because he knows he'll get asked in Iowa whether or not he tried and fought hard enough for school privatization. Um, and there was a lot of questions about how far it would be able to get because it's been tried a few times and it's often, you know, and it gets blocked. Not because there's a lot of Democrats who have ability to stop it. Um, it's because there's a lot of division within even the Republican Party in the state of Texas, particularly between Republicans who represent districts like um, areas like Travis County, Harris County, Dallas, right? Like these major these these larger cities and rural Republicans, because um, and I reckon it's probably the similar thing in Alabama. Um, you know, in a lot of these rural areas, um, one, the, you know, the schools are important culturally and socially for people, but they're also important for people is people's employment, 
right? I mean, that's like a, a place that you can go and get a job, you know, maybe as, as a teacher or as a support staff, administrative staff, et cetera. Um, so it's a very important economic engine in, in particularly a lot of rural parts of Texas and, you know, rural parts of Texas are rural. Um, you know, so there's always been a lot of uh, pushback on this and, um, you know, fights, you know, about things, for example, like what will happen to football teams? I mean, like that's a big deal in the state. But um, effectively, um, all of the Republicans have been being lobbied extremely hard. There's been a lot of money spent on this issue. And um, the way that these th this privatization effort is sort of being uh, led is that it would set up effectively, uh, they're called Evis, um, education savings accounts. So each student who's already in a public school would have a set of money that's attached to them um, that they could take to their public school or they could take to a private school. The problem here um, is that um, what that will do is, one, take money out of the public system. Two, we'll bring more money from the public system into the private system and the religious school system. Um, and also, it's not a doorway for most uh, working class Texans um, you know, of school age to go to a private school. Because the education savings accounts aren't enough money to pay for tuition at the nice, fancy private schools that we have in this state. On top of that, again, if you're in Travis County, if you're in Houston, if you're in San Antonio, if you're in Dallas, you have some options, right? You subsidize a few thousand dollars a year. You send your kid to a, a private school. You get some money from the state to do that. Not really the case in a lot of rural Texas, um, you know, that they have like tremendous amounts of private schools around them. So effectively, it would be lessening the amount, um, lowering the amount of money that'd be going to some of these rural schools. Um, um, while effectively just subsidizing wealthy families who were already probably going to take their kids and pay full tuition to private schools, mm -hmm. um, take money out of the public system and basically pay it into the private system. Um, politically, what's happened is it went through the Texas Senate, but in the Texas House, there has been, um, you know, some pushback and there was some pushback in the Senate, but ended up passing in, in the House. Effectively, what they did is they attached um, a amendment to a larger bill that they that they're pushing through that basically said that they the state budget won't fund school voucher, a school voucher system. But that's not a final bill. And it's going to go back to the um, and the Senate can basically um, do a lot to sort of weaken that. And then it will return to the House where it, it seems pretty. I mean, I don't want to make predictions here um, because Texas politics moves really fast sometimes. Um, but effectively, um, what that signaling is, what, what that vote was saying is that a lot of rural Republicans aren't happy with the way that the language of the school voucher program is currently set up. They want to get more, um, you know, concessions, more promises of how much funding will go to some of those rural schools um, and, and, and things of, of that nature. So this is such a big priority for the Republican party that I sort of, um, I wouldn't be too optimistic that that uh, house amendment is basically the end of um the, the school voucher push, a lot of the smarter people who I talk about who follow the ledger really closely think that there will be some, in some form or another um, some form of school vouchers that will go to uh, Abbott's desk um, during the session. And, uh, you know, he has obviously been pushing for it and has pledged uh, to sign it. So it's not done. 
um but it's also not blocked um despite i mean hell I'll, you know just a minute i was excited when i saw that that news too friend you know what i mean um yeah yeah well and, and, and you know sorry it's like and the way that it's set up is really wild too because like you know there there's like there's a lot of pushes to say that you can also take that money for home homeschooling to just sort of there's been some proposals that basically it's just like this is just money Right. And that's yeah. more like the Alabama version that's being discussed. It's very open-ended. Yeah. yeah I you mean, can just take money and do whatever you want with it. Right. So it's like you're taking money out of the public school. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's really, um, um, you know, egregious. And as somebody who, you know, went to Texas public schools, I mean, it's, it's worrying um, because like, you know, Texas has some really great schools. It also has a lot of underfunded um, schools and the reason that these things are are so nasty um, apart from maybe some of the things that like I think that as a society it's a good thing to educate children I think it's actually something we should be proud of right that we provide that to children right and we should want to provide the best education to our kids and the next generation the way that this is set up basically will pull more and more money out of underfunded poor working class communities and will super fund the already really, really well off communities in Texas. Right. And I don't know, that's Which, not something that I can get behind. Yeah. And it only feeds that cycle, right? Because the more the public schools are underfunded, the more demand you have for voucher programs, right? The more legitimate grievances people will have, the more families will, will look for alternatives. It's a, it's a really vicious cycle where the public schools that are meant to serve Yes, predominantly working class communities are sabotaged from the inside out uh, while, yes, funneling public dollars from the public treasury into private pockets. It's uh, and, you know, just disturbing adding to that. Just you know, right now, like there's a massive teacher shortage in the state mm -hmm. of Texas. Teachers have have seen, uh, you know, significant war on, on their wages and livelihood and life. I mean, you know, quite literally. Um and the the kind of weasel word that you're hearing from a lot of the Texas GOP right now, um, people who are supporting it, is that every school in Texas will be fully funded, right? But again, what does fully funded mean? Right. Does that mean that the funding is going to lower, right? I mean, like that fits in that that kind of rhetoric. Yeah, because like um, when has it ever been fully funded, you know, by like a legitimate measurement of needs? Yeah, no, they're just, they're just, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, so fu fully funded could mean literally anything. One of the big advocates and, you know, lobbyists, but we call them what they are, has been using Obama's, uh, Obamacare line, um, which is like, if you like your public school, you can keep it. Um, but honestly, like, I don't think you can, like, generally make that, that, that promise to people. No, um, you can't. Looking at, at, looking at some of the proposals that have been laid out and looking at some of the consequences that are very likely to come from this. Right, exactly, and and that's the uh, the consequences that are going to come from this. The that is something that is inc that is so so frustrating to me um, when I see people falling for this um, because mm -hmm. you know I, I think that there's there are like just normal working families, and I think this will actually kind of lead into the next conversation. But there the, there's Working families, they want their children to be well-educated, and they're being mm -hmm. sold this bill of goods that, oh, if we have competition 
in the education marketplace, we're going to empower you as consumers of education. And it's ultimately, not only is it going to give you more choice and you're going to be able to maybe take your kid to this fancy ass private school, but it'll also make the public schools better because they're going to have to compete with these fancy ass Mm -hmm. private schools in a way that they don't have to right now. And so they say all these things and they try to make, um, working class people, they try to convince working folks that privatization is actually going to increase educational outcomes in their communities. But they, and they, and they make all these, all these fancy hypothetical arguments and they, they talk in, you know, highfalutin, uh, you know, up in the clouds language. But we, the, the thing that's frustrating to me and it, and we know why, right. Is that they never, ever point to results they never do that they because they can't because it's not as if we exist uh we are floating alone in the ether in alabama as a state we are not Mm -hmm. the only people who have ever existed and there are states in this country that have implemented exactly the same kind of programs that you're talking about in texas and that they're talking about in alabama and we can just we can just look at the results and they're not good (laughs) <laughs> they're, they're not good. We've talked about how, you know, you said that that um, it's going to funnel money into people that are already into the pockets of wealthy people that are already sending their kids to private schools. That's not a hypothetical. Maybe this is going to happen. Maybe that's not. We can look at the results. 70 to 80 percent of these funds go to parents who are already sending their kids to private schools. It's not increasing choice. It's just funneling money into their pockets. We can also look at the educational outcomes. They do not increase in public schools in states where this is tried. And they do not actually even increase the educational outcomes of people who utilize these vouchers by and large. Which is a crazy statistic. But that's, it's been studied and we can see that. But they're not, but these advocates, these lobbyists who are paid by you know, these interests that are interested in, in enriching their friends who are sending their kids to private schools or who maybe are interested in, in, yeah, in, in owning private schools themselves. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) they're trying to, like, that's the thing is like, let's, let's be clear about this. This is, this is saying that right now we have a, a, you know, generally public, we have, you know, generally public system in, in, in this country where, you know, the majority of kids are going to public schools, um, and, you know, there's people who want to make money off of that process. Well, how can I start making money off of children's education? Well, we get rid of public schools and we increase the amount of money that's going to private interest, right? Like, this is, like, beyond, like, what it means for educational outcomes. Like, let's always, like, you know, you got to follow the money. Why is there concerted interest? Is it because a bunch of wealthy folks are particularly worried about educational outcomes for children? Or is it because there's a really nice market opportunity? If you have a massive state like Texas, you know, basically funding a lot of private opportunities that you can grift and graft off. of. Yep, exactly. Exactly. And so let's the the main point of discussion that I, that I wanted to talk about, and, and we, we kind of spoke to it there, is this idea of folks voting against their own interests, quote unquote. This is something that that we see in. Uh, that we see lobbed at uh, folks in red states, folks who vote against unions in uh, more and less um, 
in, in more and less good faith ways, uh, more and less respectful of these people. Um, you know, in, in some cases we can see, you know, unironically liberal elites, you know, <laughs> these, you know, fancy lawyers, right, uh, from, from out of state looking at people in Alabama and saying, you know, these, these hicks, they just don't know anything. They don't, they don't know even to vote in their own interests. Uh, but then we do see we do see good good natured and, and good faith criticisms from people who just who just literally don't understand uh, uh, you know and in some cases that's that's me right I don't understand how people can uh, you know can do these certain things um, that it seems to me are directly opposed to their material interests. Um, mm -hmm. And you talked about that on one of your solo streams for Left Reckoning uh, a week and a half ago, I think it was. Um, what was your main point in that Griscom stream? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few things in here. I mean, basically, like, uh, this whole voting against their interest thing that I think has become, like, a popular, um, like, I don't know, slogan or, or, or term, um, I think sort of misses like the the point of American politics. For example, like when people talk about voting against their interests, one thing they always cite is a book called What's the Matter with Kansas, right? And no one ever talks about the book. They say the title, right? I've always found that funny um, because if you read the book, what that book is about is how the Democratic Party in the state of Kansas, like many other states, started turning their backs on working people and not really fighting for them, not really providing them much. Um, and you know, how that created opportunities for the right to pick up voters. Um, you know, so this idea that, like, for example, you know, when you see a party that's like not really standing up for for working people to say, oh, if you're not supporting them, then you're sort of like working against your own interests, I think is a misguided understanding of politics. You know, I'm somebody who believes in, in working class people and in working class politics, and we don't see that um, across the country, frankly. Um, when it comes to the the two major political parties, for the most part, and the vast majority of political candidates. So the question that we have um, as, you know, people who want to fight for workers, people who want to fight for union members, people who want to really build working class power in this country um, is how can we build vehicles that can deliver those results? Right. That's a big conversation, big question. This thing about ideology, I think, is an important starting point because. One thing that's really um, frustrating, and a lot of this stuff I've been really influenced by a uh, thinker and writer, Vivek Chibber, um, on it, is that effectively when you don't have avenues for working class politics, right, working class organizations that are able to flex their muscle and win direct results for people, how do you engage with the world? How do you engage with politics? Primarily as an individual, Right. Maybe sometimes as a part of like another group. Right. Maybe racially, culturally, except, you know, socially, et cetera. Um, and I think that's a bad result. I'm not saying that that's a good thing, but that's people acting in a particular interest that they have. Right. Um, and, you know, the question that like people, again, who want to build working class politics have to do is like, well, how can we build a vehicle or, or movement that like represents those interests so that people are, you know, saying this is the group, this is the organization, these are the people that I know have my back, I can participate in that and get real results um, 
for myself and like it's one thing that like it's really frustrating because you see lefties that basically they they'll talk about the working class as this you know in this country as if they're just like tremendously confused about the world they don't understand um their interests like maybe even not even talking about voting for a second let's talk about another group of people that like 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 wealthy liberals love to attack right non-voters right um well most uh, you know like there's a really great um kind of in-depth interview uh program that they did here in texas about the non-voters because there's a lot of non-voters in the state of texas um you know they were asking people like what do you think um you know people were saying like what you know what what would you like to see in politics they they say things like you know we want more regulations on big financial firms we want universal health care we want higher wages we want more workers protections um and then you know the you know a lot there's a you know a section of like a you know liberal class will be like yeah exactly so why are you not voting well it's like you know um a lot of those people for example were like former obama obama vote voters right and they saw what happened to their life um after you know participating and, and voting for somebody like that and it was very disappointing very demobilizing for folks so why right why like buoy the career of somebody else who doesn't really seem to want to be fighting for you and like your direct interests you know why participate in that thing right again like i think that we should be building movements that get people out to vote right and the way you do that by the way is getting candidates and people running for office who actually will fight for working people i'm not saying that that's like the end all be all that like just because people think this way that like you know there's no reason in you know pushing or having conversations um, etc but like understand that's a very rational decision to make in my opinion right um another one too is just like um you know like we're all big fans of unions for example right we think unions are really important um but for a lot of people if you're in an ununion non-unionized workplace right going up and trying to go through that process and winning a union is really hard and you can get beat right um you know so like when somebody says i'm hesitant about this i'm worried about this i don't think that this might work for me right again it's not saying that that's like the end all be all it's saying that's a very reasonable look at the state of labor in this country the way that the the deck is rigged against working people right and it's like a real important mentality shift i think to say that like no most people are rational most people are intelligent most people understand what's happening around them i mean like you know like y'all are all from the south you know exactly what this is like you know the way that other people talk about this region is completely um un <laughs> uh you know unreflective of like what it actually exists you talk to normal people and what do they say bosses are screwing us the system's rigged against us you know like people generally understand that they're being exploited right um and uh, there's a whole section, I think, of like the left, um, and I'm including even like people sort of even in our orbit, right, um, who think that like the way the reason that we don't have, for example, like a working class party or strong labor movement in this country is because ideology people are so bamboozled about these things, you know, versus like the actual material reality that like these these movements have been thoroughly beaten into the ground the the, the deck is uh, the game is really rigged against them and i'm not saying we can't do these things but if you if you come from an understanding that basically the reason we don't have these things is because people have like the wrong ideas or that they're just so confused by the world you're never going to get out of this uh you know situation uh that 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 we're currently in um you know and you look at like um class the alignment in this country you know 
mainly like how a lot of traditionally more like union communities uh, have like moved from maybe being solidly democratic voters in other parts of the country to, you know, maybe voting for Trump in 2016 or in 2020. Um, and, you know, you see that like um, <laughs> a lot of the things that, you know, people were saying is like, there's one interest that's like, well, there's a wealthy group of people in my state and I want to do something that hinders them or pisses them off. Right. I'm like, it's not going to get the results that, you know, um, you know, are, you know, that, that, that people need or, or even want, but like, you know, these people have been screwing you over, put two middle fingers up to them or whatever. Right. Um, like, again, like it's like, there's, there's a lot more rationality and, and purpose, um, behind these things than, than folks think. You know, another one is like what Trump got a lot of, um, you know, uh, movement for was like talking about immigration. And I'm somebody who thinks that, you know, immigration is something important. We should be supporting immigrants. But if you're what, what capitalism does, is it pits working people against each other. Right. Um, that's like the reason that we're in this mess is because we're not united as a class of people who labor. Uh, we're pitted against each other in different sections of of, of, of the working class. Um, you know, so if you're seeing people who are able to, you know, come into your community and be hired, they're waging war against them. And I'm not saying that's a good thing, but like it's coming much more from like a material place than, you know, just sort of like, you know, pure irrationality. And what our job is, is to change the material politics where people recognize that, like, you know, that immigrant labor that's like lives down the street from me is actually subjected to the same exploitation that I am. And I have a hell of a lot more to gain from joining up with them and taking on the bosses than I do about waging war against my neighbor. But again, the the engine, like the 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 motivation for a lot of that stuff comes from like a material reality that is put upon people with that desired result. Do you know what I mean? Like the immigration stuff that happens in this country, the immigration fights that have the desired result is to create chaos and conflict within the working class against each other. Um, and again, it's, it's Genesis is like from the system that we have. Um, and if you don't recognize that, then, you know, you're the arguments that you are, are going to be making are going to be rooted in that material fact um, and you're not really going to find a way out of it because look, there are a lot of different identities that, um, you can have as an American, right. That aren't just being a worker, right. You can be a Southerner, you can be a white person, right. You can be a woman, a man, right. Um, and like the idea behind working class politics is that we, um, are recognized that there's something very universal about working class existence, um, and that that has the ability to actually tie together a lot of different identities and a lot of different groups. But in the absence of that, groups are going to act as part of those other groups, right? Um, and again, like, you got to think about why these things are existing versus just sort of thinking that like, oh, it's because people are stupid or people are confused if you want to change them. Right. And that's and, and it's, you know, certainly easier said than done because there is something of a, uh, you know, uh, a, a prisoner's dilemma there, right? Yeah. Because there is a, you know, you mentioned uh, in in the union context, in the organizing context, there is actually like a real material interest to, um, to sure not voting for the union, but even potentially being an active uh, anti 
campaign. Yeah, we're being right? a scab, if, right? That's like a that's being that's a scab. Like, you're getting paid for that, you know. Right. And like, I just want to be really clear that like, because so, sometimes people get confused with what I'm saying. I'm not saying these things are good, right? Um, that they they exist. What just I'm so we that, understand like, the context, right? Because yeah. if if we do want and and we do. We want a a working class movement. I think it is important to to uh, to believe, like like you said, that that you know most people are rational and most people understand their interests, and and so the way that our society is pushing us to think is as atomized individuals. And so mm-hmm. if we think about our and and this is what I uh, you know. The, the reason I wanted to bring you bring you on to talk about this because I think it's so important that if you only think about yourself in your workplace that's forming mm-hmm. a union as an atomized individual, much like in you know all these thought experiments, you as an individual do potentially have some material interest in opposing the union. But mm-hmm. if instead we shift, you're, if if we try to shift a person's analysis from their individual to the collective, then they can begin to see that oh you know it's actually in my it, it's also in my material interest to be part of this union and to be part of this of of finding the boss and taking more from the boss and taking more of the la- of the value that I create. Um, and it, it's, uh, you know, in the political arena, it is in my material interest to come together with my sisters and brothers who may or may not be originally from this country to all of us fight for better wages and working conditions. Uh, you know, the, the shifting your analysis from the individual to the collective is the important thing. But but that's a difficult thing to do. Right. Is is to. And, and so what are what are some of the ways that 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 you've thought through to try to to try to nudge people into thinking more um more in terms of of community and, so and as a to- collective totally i mean like there's rhetorical stuff and look i'm like a uh professional talker so it's not like i don't have ideas about like how to make an argument about why being a union is good you know why uh fighting for working class politics is good all of that kind of stuff but at a certain point, I've become more and more convinced um, that, again, I'm not saying that that stuff's unimportant. Look, I do like a politics show because I have, you know, I, I think that it's, it's worthwhile to be out there and engage in those ideas and to meet people where they're at and talk about, you know, these things with them. But really what I think a lot of this has to do is building capacity. And what I mean by that is like actually showing people and building movements if it's a strong labor movement if it's a strong political movement that showing up and participating in these things actually can win right and it's one of those things that like you hit this wall right because to win you have to get people on 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 your side before you can win right and you know what what i say to that is like there have always been and there always will be um you know people who come first right like people who show up first because they come into that that realization sort of early and they say they're committed to the struggle saying like I'm willing to put you know potentially make you know significant sacrifices to win these victories for uh, my coworkers for the class um for my community right um but like if you want to change these things it's showing people that like that like politics and that labor activity can change their lives to the be- for the better and the way you do that is by winning um, you know, an example of this is that, like, 
um, you know, I was, a, I mean, I still am a big supporter of like Green New Deal policy, right? Um, I think that like what we should do is we should say to the, the working people in this country who have been fueling and powering our society that, you know, your service is incredibly valuable, your knowledge is incredibly valuable, and we want y'all to help us build this transition. Um, which means things like wage guarantees, um, a job guarantee that like, even if we might co close a coal plant, um, you know, you can work in, in the renewable um, industry and we're going to change the renewable industry because as people who work in that industry know, um, unfortunately, the, the wind and solar industry right now is pretty egregious um, in the way that they pay and treat workers, um, you know, um, just transition where if you're working in, you know, uh, um, in in like a heavy heavily fossil fuel industry um that you know we'll have security for you that like one um we want you to work in the transition but two we're just not going to put people out of the job right um it could be something as simple as like wage guarantees like during a um you know training programs for different kinds of work right Anyways, I like all these policies, right? But, you know, and I talk to friends and people who work in those industries and they like those policies too. And, you know, the retort that you get from folks is like, I like that. I just don't see that as something that is possible, right? And that, again, is like a very reasonable um, thing. So it's not that these people are like, oh, they're so confused about the world. They don't understand the world. It's a very like, you know, clear-eyed, it's pessimistic, don't get me wrong, but clear-eyed look at like what's happened in American politics over the past few decades that like good things are really hard um to win so like what we have to be sort of focusing on is how can we show up and fight for people um in their in their like immediate the immediate struggles that they're in try to push back and and win some of these games i mean like that's things like showing up to labor actions that means showing up and supporting people when they're on strike showing up and supporting people during union campaigns right um and and building those kind of real uh connections with workers um versus just sort of this very condescending wagging of the finger that we get from a lot of the left right now when it comes uh to to working class people like it's like the the for me like this is where i'm at like politically right now like the only question that i really like care about in the sense i think is like productive in a lot of ways is like how can we start to build capacity to take the way that people feel which is that they're being exploited that like their boss is screwing them that these corporations are screwing them that the political system doesn't care about them how do we build the capacity to show people that there is another way um and you know that's hard work um it's not even as fun as like just doing an argument right or like creating good rhetoric or um media about it but like that's sort of where we're at um because it is it is building that capacity or it is just like a constant cycle of you know maybe small victories and then just collapse right and just going through the cycle that has been sort of the cycle of working class politics in this country um for the vast majority of its history yeah yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're speaking to a lot there. And a couple of things that really stood out to me is like you're speaking to the importance of relationships that are built through struggle. Uh, and I think that is is a dynamic that uh, is very powerful when harnessed uh, and and when we see it happening. Um, and, and I think to maybe throw in a more spiritual side to this, uh, I think love is important. And it is an important part of this kind of movement and this kind of effort, uh, being rooted in love and, and treating people in good faith um, and approaching people in good faith. That's that's very important. And, you know, solidarity is just love 
express socially, right? It's just like mm-hmm. our society uh, version of love, the communal form of it. Uh, and so I, I think what you're talking about in terms of showing up for each other's struggles, that is huge. Uh, and just helping each other out, helping each other out and, and building those connections and, and ex- continually growing the network. Um, but by showing up for each other, that really goes a long way. Uh, even if yeah. it's for folks that you don't truly uh, understand 100 percent or, you know, maybe it's not, you know, your normal crowd, per se, uh, whatever the situation may be, you know, if sh- someone has a righteous cause and you can be on the side of justice why not you know why not do that and i think <laughs> the more we do that the the stronger our networks become totally and, and like i, I mean I, I totally agree and like you look um you know we just had paul prescott on our show um you know who is a um an organizer with the team search for a democratic union on to talk about a tony Mazaki, who is like a very legendary labor leader um, and like so many of the, the great things uh, that that he was able to achieve work came out of like actually building that community within his union. Right. Um, having things like they had like this is like in the in the 50s. So it might seem a little antiquated, but they had like a really raucous bowling league. You know, nice. Um, where people are able to like have fun and, 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 and know their coworkers. Uh, they had like a very vigorous, um, you know, reading group and study group, you know, with a bunch of people who like weren't college educated, were reading, you know, the classics, reading, um, you know, working class theory and and and, and politics, um, you know, and like being able to reckon with them and understand them um, and, and, and work through them. There's another se- and there's a whole other conversation, but there's another segment I find um, on like the left, even, which is a sad thing that sort of acts like working people aren't are sort of incapable of engaging um, in, you know, history and politics and, and literature, something that, again, I find to be extremely, um, you know, condescending. Um, but no, I mean, totally, like building community is just as important part of of, of that work, you know, in, in a lot of ways, just as important uh, as building up the, um, you know, like the, the political engine and, 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 and structures that are needed to sort of win those uh, victories on the legislative level. Um, yeah, you well, know, I, I mean, like, well, well, and speaking about Mizaki, he was the president of the OCAW, the Oil, Chemical, and Atomic yeah. Workers Union, and he was able to, as president of this union representing oil and nuclear workers, to advocate for decarbonization and uh, mm-hmm. anti-nuclear. Uh, like an- anti-nuclear uh, weapons, weapons yeah. politics, not anti-nuclear energy, nuclear energy. I think we're generally uh, cautiously pro-nuclear energy on the show, Good. but um, but uh, uh, anti-nuclear weapons, and mm-hmm. and so if you're thinking even individually, uh, but w- for this group, for just this group. Oh, decarbonization, oil workers supporting decarbonization, that's that's against their interests, right? You're not even thinking, yeah. uh, you know, we're not even thinking individually, we're thinking about this people these people as a group, but they were even able to go beyond, you know, we have this group of oil workers and we have a common interest. They expanded that circle of interest to the globe, to the world, mm-hmm. to the country at at minimum and and saying like, no, it's actually in in our it's in our material interest to decarbonize, which is, you know, th- yeah. this is even another step beyond, uh, but but that's something that's incredibly impressive that that Mizaki was able to do, um, and, and that, you know, that is, 
difficult to that, imagine you do that by and, winning and, and by building trust. Yeah. Right. And it's something that's difficult to imagine in, in this environment because, um, you know, I, I remember, um, David writing an article for the nation about, uh, how we need, we don't need more military spending. We need, you know, green union jobs for for working people and he said that he got like you know he he got some some flack from his international right and it's because they're like stuck in this you know i don't know i don't want to get too far off on that tangent but but yeah it's it's uh mizaki's incredible character yeah i mean like you know like again like you know and he had like was able to walk that line and, and do a lot of things but like the environmental movement has been sort of bad at, um, you know, he has a line that, um, you know, I first came across from Matt Huber's excellent book, Class War, um, Climate Change as Class War. Um, but, you know, um, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but it's like um, we should treat uh, workers just as well as we, we treat dirt. And what he meant by that is that like whenever like industry changes, like we have tremendous amounts of funding to go to sort of clean up industrial sites and, to, you know, fix up the soil. Um, but we don't have those kind of policies for workers um, in those industries. Right. Um, no, I mean, like, it, like, I think that like, that's somebody that is, is, is definitely worth your time in engaging um, with, with, with his work. Um, if you're unfamiliar. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, generally, I just think that um, if we don't get more serious about what it's going to take um, to be building a working class movement, then it's just like, you know, these are just like intellectual exercises and like debates and we're having fun. And don't get me wrong, I love his spirited debate and all that kind of stuff. Um, but you know, at, at this point, knowing what's going on for working people in this country, we need much, much more than that. And, you know, I, I think a lot of people should sort of take a look in the mirror and think about, um, you know, look, I mean, I, I think that like, you know, we should defend ourselves, um, as, as a left and as a working class movement, um, certainly, but like when you see that we're not winning, you need to start looking in the mirror and saying, what are we doing? That's not working. Right. If you, if like your response to why isn't there enough class mobilization in this country is that like working people are confused or stupid um, or don't understand themselves, um, you will never win. And you probably shouldn't, honestly, if that's like your, your thought process about the general person in this country. David Griscom, co-host of Left Reckoning, appreciate your time. We uh, went a, went a little bit over, but uh, but I appreciate it. It was a good talk. Yeah, of course. Always happy Absolutely. to do it, friends. Thanks yeah. so much, brother. All right. Take care. Check him out on YouTube at Left Reckoning. Really good stuff, and I uh, super enjoyed that conversation that he had with uh, Paul Prescott as well. Uh, like he said, organizer with TDU, talked about Tony Mazzocchi. Um Really, really good conversation. Always good stuff happening over there at Left Reckoning, so check them out. Um, we're going to go to a break really quick and be right back. If you want to uh, give us a comment as we round out the show, the phone number is 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We're going to be right back. Alabama's only union talk radio show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, here with my co-host Adam Keller. 
We appreciate you taking the time to listen. Appreciate the conversation in the chat from Infinite Content, Vex the Cat, DL Cindero, Army Mobility Officer, Will talking about uh, his local Teamsters Union over in Anaheim, California being fired up for contract negotiations. Ex- uh, we're excited to hear about that. Uh, Pepino Nation, uh, Jose also a teamster in california he was interviewed for the upsurge podcast check that out it is a podcast specifically about the ups teamsters negotiations and what ups teamsters go through highly recommend it it is done by the very talented teddy ostro and features a regular viewer and commenter in the chat so we appreciate that uh, and as well as conversations from Flair Child, we got a $5 super chat from Christopher Cotton. Keep up the good work. Thank y'all. Thank you, Chris. Yeah, really uh, appreciate, appreciate that. It. And as always, uh, Joe and Mel in the Facebook chat. Appreciate y'all tuning in and supporting us every day, every week. So, um, Adam, you have a, uh, you got a small update about uh, domestic workers, right? Yeah, I wanted to hit this before we wrap up this morning. Uh, So the National Domestic Workers Alliance has put out a statement on the White House proclamation recognizing April as Care Worker Recognition Month. So back uh, on March 31st, right before the start of the month, the Biden-Harris administration announced a White House proclamation declaring April as Care Worker Recognition Month, highlighting the administration's continued commitment to strengthening the care economy and marking a critical step forward for direct care workers, caregivers, early childhood educators, and child care workers to live and work with the respect and recognition they deserve. Now, me personally, I, you know, I, I'm I'm interested to hear more about what the administration's supposedly doing about the care economy. Um, however, I am willing to recognize that this recognition is itself important. Uh, it's important that we have this month to recognize domestic workers who are often under-recognized in this country. And that's why the D- National Domestic Workers Alliance is excited to see a month dedicated to the workers who care for our loved ones and national acknowledgement of what care workers have known all along, that care is essential and care can't wait. The president and executive director of NDWA put out uh, the following statement. We celebrate the Biden-Harris administration's decision to proclaim April as Care Worker Recognition Month. For decades, we have known that care workers are the engine of our economy and society, enabling our families to thrive by ensuring our loved ones are cared for with respect and dignity. Now it's time for the rest of the country to see what we see. It's time we recognize care work and thank care workers for the life-enabling work they do. This proclamation represents a turning point in our country. Public recognition of work often invisibilized and undervalued, made possible by the women of color who have organized for decades to achieve transformational change in the care industry. We are thrilled to have a dedicated month for the workers who make everything else possible, and we welcome the opportunity to thank them on a national stage. And this April, we must go beyond acknowledgement. We must recommit to real change. America's care workers provide the care needed for older adults and people with chronic illnesses or disabilities to live independently and with dignity. 
They provide enriching environments for our children to grow and learn, and they understand the critical human connection necessary to provide care for our loved ones. With a growing, aging population, American families need more support than ever, driving a rapid growth in the number of care jobs. Yet they too often earn poverty wages without benefits or adequate time off and struggle to make ends meet. The workers we count on to care for us struggle to care for their own families. We can't recognize care workers without recognizing that reality. That is why this April, we will also be recommitting to action to make care jobs the living wage jobs they deserve. May this proclamation pave the way for generational change in the quality of these jobs. May we achieve investments in home and community-based services to raise wages for the workforce, pass a national domestic worker bill of rights, and put these jobs on a path to real economic opportunity and mobility. We join the nation in celebrating and thanking our care workers and look forward to amplifying the stories and power of care work all month and beyond. So I wanted to put that out there uh, because as their statement alluded to, domestic care workers, domestic workers are just uh, often forgotten about in our economy. Um, often they are not treated as employees legally. Uh, often they do not have paid sick leave or any sort of paid benefits, um, often are working without retirement benefits or, uh, you know, living wages, frankly. And so these are people who are doing very important work, doing work that uh, we rely on, that families across the country rely on, uh, the people who are taking care of our elders, taking care of our sick and our injured and our disabled. Um, so it's very important that these be good jobs, that these be union jobs, that these be jobs that are sustainable so that folks can have a family and have a decent life of dignity uh, while doing this important work. So wanted to recognize this uh, statement from the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Awesome. And uh, with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up this show with our plugs. Um, just some reminders. Check out the April 6th episode of America's Workforce Radio because Adam was on it. That's right. Adam was on it talking about Shop Talk, talking about Warrior Met, and talking about uh, the Atlanta Opera. The North Alabama Area Labor Council has a barbecue, folks, next weekend. And we're going to be strategizing some after the show about exactly how we're going to be handling this because it is on Saturday. It is on April 22nd. It's on Earth Day from 11 to 4 at Braun Spring Park Pavilion 1. Braun Spring Park Pavilion 1, Saturday, April 22nd, 11 to 4. Uh, union members, allies, non-union members, anybody that wants, come on out. We're going to have uh, free food. Uh, Good folks, good times. It's going to be great. Really looking forward to it. The uh, grand opening of the Automotive Free Clinic is today at 1 p.m. Uh, that's Saturday, April 15th at 1259B South Memorial Drive, Prattville, Alabama. 36067. It's going to include live music and food. So if you're over there in the Montgomery area, uh, then you can go ahead and head on over. Uh, yeah. And uh, don't forget to check out our interview from a few months back with uh, Zach, who is the uh, director there of the Automotive Free Clinic. As they do each month, our friends at Labor Notes are hosting a series of online trainings. If you're looking uh, to learn how to get involved in your union or just activism in general, 
Uh, highly recommend you check it out. The Stewards Workshop Assertive Grievance Handling is the next one, and it is on April 19th. Don't forget that our new weekly series called Shop Talk, airing online on Thursday mornings, is up and running now. Shop Talk is dedicated to labor education, history, and training. Check out the live stream on Thursdays at 9.30 a.m. Central, or the podcast comes out the following Monday at 5 a.m. And if you're not already on our email list at tvlr.fm, folks, you got to sign up for that. Got to sign up for that. Uh, go to tvlr.fm slash contact and let us know uh, whether you want to be on the daily or the weekly update, we can uh, we accommodate however however much you want us to bug you. We will happily oblige. Um, it's going to send all of our new content directly to your inbox, uh, folks. You can give us a call eight four four eight nine nine TVLR. That is eight four four eight nine nine eight eight five seven. As we go into overtime. Um, or you can leave us a voicemail throughout the week. Buy our merch or give us money at tvlr.fm store and tvlr.fm donate. Don't forget, if you are watching the stream right now, like, subscribe, and share the show. We're going to be heading into overtime, where we're going to be talking to Lee Harris from the American Prospect about, uh, about the CHIPS Act and uh, the CHIPS Act and the lack of labor protections, uh, in particular in Arizona. In particular in Arizona. So um, definitely... Stay tuned for that. Uh, really, kind of a Western theme show today. Absolutely, really looking forward to that. And we're going to be playing a couple of clips from the uh, Rutgers strike. They had uh, huge news with a tentative agreement just announced yesterday. So, uh, looking forward to talking about that and maybe getting on a Rutgers person to be in conversation with a union grad worker in Alabama for the next show. So, stay tuned for that. Uh, we're going to go ahead and in, head into overtime, so stay tuned, and if we don't, if you don't come into overtime with us, we'll see you next week. All power to 